0: Our text today is Isaiah 61 and my heart is full today with many thoughts in light of what I've seen in this passage today and as I read Isaiah 61, I just can't help but think of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. You may have historically used that term heaven to describe that, I mean the same thing, the new heavens and the new earth. I can't wait for the absence of sin, No suffering, no death, never having to say goodbye. The prospect of living in a world where there's nothing but joy. Seeing Jesus face to face. It's incredible. I can't wait to make an appointment with Moses. Sit down over good coffee with Jeremiah. There's gonna be coffee in heaven, just so you know. (laughs) Invite Elijah to chips and salsa and Diet Coke and we're gonna have a great conversation. John the Baptist, what was it like? Peter and to sit and talk with the Apostle Paul can you imagine it's going to be as real as this very moment is the names that you know in this room will be names that you know in the new heavens and the new earth but one of the things I think also that will happen in the new heavens and the new earth is uh, some of our mysteries biblically will be solved I tremble a little bit at the thought of learning how many of my sermons were right and how many were just a little off. But one of the things that I really, really, really hope is a part of the new heavens and the new earth is the ability to see a scene that's written in the Bible. I wanna rewind the tape, do a replay, maybe even a slow-mo replay. I'd like to be able to sense the mood in the room the dramatic turn of events. I mean, come on, if mere mortals can create instant replay and slow motion reviews, surely it's gonna be in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know this for a fact, but I, I hope. What scene would you want to replay? Now, I actually want you to give me some feedback. Think of that question for a moment. What scene in the Bible, if you could push Replay, rewind that. Show me the tape, play that again. What scene would you like to see? Gethsemane, Jesus' baptism, baptism. Lazarus. Lazarus. Oh, that's a moment. Whoa, all of them are moments, don't get me wrong, but that was pretty cool. Okay, so what else? Joseph forgiving his brothers. Joseph forgiving his brothers. Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden empty tomb. Isn't this amazing? Like our minds and our imaginations could just go all over the place. There's a scene that you may not have thought of that I'd like to draw your attention to. Before we get to Isaiah 61, go to Luke chapter four. In Luke chapter four, it's such a fascinating text and I wish we had time to fully unpack everything that's here. In, in Luke's narrative, he is launching the description of Jesus' ministry. He talks about the temptation in Jesus in chapter 4 and verse 1, and the beginning of his ministry in chapter 4 and verse 14. And then the very first thing that Luke, the physician, an intelligent, thoughtful man, records, the thing that he wants the readers of his gospel to see, the very first ministry of Jesus, in terms of proclamation, comes in verse 16. Here's what the text says. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. It's hometown. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So he's in his hometown, he's in the synagogue, in the city, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. This is the scene that I wanna see, and here's what he read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stops right there. In a moment, we'll see he stopped halfway through a verse. He stopped in the middle of it. Verse 20 says, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down. And then, it says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's even more remarkable, verse 22, all the people spoke well of him. Respectable young man, grew up in our city, little village. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And in this moment, we don't have time to unpack all of it, but in this moment, when Jesus reads this scripture, the people think well of him, and if you follow the rest of the text, Jesus then goes on to tell them something that makes them so mad in that moment that they rush him out of the synagogue and attempt to push him over a cliff, but he escapes through the crowd. So in the first moment of Jesus's ministry, he's loved and hated. He's revered and reviled. In the moment of his ministry, he opens up the scroll to our text today in Isaiah 61. This text is really important. This is the moment I'd love to see. I'd love to see the environment in the synagogue. I'd love to see the mood flip in the room. They went from, honoring him to hating him in an instant. We'll see why as we explore Isaiah 61 this morning. I think your Bible go to Isaiah 61. What is it about this text? Why did Jesus choose this one? Of all of the Old Testament passages that he could have referred to, he went to Isaiah 61 and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is an important passage. Isaiah 61, church, is a powerful distillation of the hopeful message of Isaiah. It's a distillation of the ministry of Jesus, and it's a summary of the trajectory of biblical history. That's all in Isaiah 61. And there are three concepts in this text that are central to the storyline of the Bible. Those three concepts and this is the story of every Christian. If you receive Jesus, this is your story. You're in this story, you're in Isaiah 61. The three concepts are hope, restoration, and glory. Hope, restoration, and glory. It's an incredible text, if you're a Christian, this is gonna remind you the way that Jesus came to you and offered you hope, brought about restoration, and points you towards eternal glory. If you're not yet a Christian, what I'm gonna explain to you from Isaiah 61 today is the central storyline of the Bible. And I hope that you'll come today to receive Christ and enter into the story where Jesus is welcoming you to be restored. What's interesting is Isaiah 61 is good news but not everyone apparently hears the good news as good news, and that's the problem in Luke chapter four. They hear the good news, but they don't hear it as good news, let's explore this. First, hope, the storyline of the Bible, hope. The chapter begins with a message of hope that's proclaimed by a messianic servant. The text says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. Here we have the spirit of the Lord, someone who's anointed by the spirit of the Lord. And throughout our study of Isaiah, we have witnessed this person or this servant that keeps emerging from time to time. He he appeared in chapter 42. Emerged in chapter 49, we saw him in chapter 50, we saw him in chapter 53. And what's remarkable is this coming servant is not just a deliverer. Oh, that's what God's people wanted. They were in exile, they wanted someone to relieve their misery, but he comes as a suffering servant. And this suffering servant in Isaiah fulfills the role that Israel failed in. Israel failed to obey, they failed to keep the law, they failed to honor God, they failed to be a light to the nations, and so this new person, this servant, that now looking back through the lens of the New Testament, we know very clearly is Jesus. This new leader becomes the new Israel, the fulfillment of God's plan. We heard about him in Isaiah 11. Take your Bible, go to Isaiah 11 familiar text, but let's just see it again. Here is this servant who is described in chapter 11, verse one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, Excuse me. And understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So here is this servant in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 61 that there's a connection between the messianic ministry of this one and the presence of the spirit. And that's what Messiah means. It means the anointed one. Anointed by, by what or with what? It's anointed by the spirit. In other words, it's a person on earth who's endowed with divine help, somebody who has divine power to actually do something that can bring hope. Who's gonna change the situation? Who's gonna help us? And here comes this servant, empowered by the Spirit of the Lord to help God's people. That's why, thinking about the New Testament, the baptism of Jesus is so monumental. Think of that moment, Jesus going into the waters of baptism, identifying with humanity. He doesn't need to be baptized, he doesn't need to repent of his sins like everybody else coming to John the Baptist, which is why John the Baptist said, you don't need to be baptized by me, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus says, do it anyways. Why? Because he's entering into our earthliness, our world, and as he comes up out of the water, the Father speaks, and in that moment, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and then the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Whoo! If you know the Isaiah passage, that text is like, wow, something's going on there. That's why at Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit landing on the tops of all of the disciples like little cloves of fire was so transformational. It was a message that the anointing was passing from Jesus to the disciples and they were gonna go and proclaim the gospel around the world. And church, that's why the inspiration of the Bible is so important. Why it's significant that what you hold in your hands is not just a myth or a story or words on a page, but the very living, breathing, inspired word of God. You know why that's important? Because you and I need more than words in a book. We need a word from God. There's hope when God intervenes. There's help when God speaks. So the question is, did you come today just to learn about the Bible or did you come to hear God speak to you through the Bible? Very different postures as you come to worship today. There's some of us who approach God like a classroom instead of hearing Him like He's a clarion caller inviting you to change. Some of us who study God but we don't listen to God. Some of us who have PhDs in understanding the grammar and we are flunking when it comes to hearing what the heart of God is all about. But I digress. Here is this servant who is heralding. But listen to me, he's not just heralding news, like, hey, there's something you need to know. He's not just heralding news, he's heralding a message that leads to transformation. He's heralding a message that can change people's lives. And that's why it's so incredibly hopeful. That's why if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, this is the most amazing place in the world for you to be. Not because we're amazing or because this church is amazing, but because of the fact that you hearing what I'm saying today has the possibility of literally changing the course of your life now and for all of eternity. That's amazing. Now, there are six statements in this text. What is he heralding? What is he doing? Look at the text. first. God has anointed him to bring good news to the poor. The Messiah's message gives hope to those who according to Old Testament scholar Alec Moitier who are the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, the helpless in themselves, and at the mercy of powerful people and adverse circumstances. There's a tendency to take the word poor And true, Matthew uses it, poor in spirit, but there's a tendency to immediately over-spiritualize it. There is a spiritual sense of this term, but Isaiah chose the word for a very specific reason. He preaches good news to the poor because the point is that help, help, is coming to those who need it, to those who must rely on others for their survival. It can mean humble or dependent, like Matthew uses it, blessed are the poor in spirit, but Luke records the same sermon and says, blessed are you poor. He uses poor as a real example of this helplessness. To be poor means that you're often trapped in a vicious cycle. Some of you who grew up poor know what this is like. Just as a cycle. You just can't seem to get out or get ahead. And it's easy to be taken advantage by others. The poor are often powerless and vulnerable, according to Isaiah 11 and verse 4, it's the poor who are to be vindicated by the Messiah. So this message begins with the promise of help to those who are desperate, which is why when the Apostle Paul was given instructions from the religious leaders in Jerusalem to take his message out, they also said, be sure that you remember the poor. A church doesn't really understand the gospel if we don't care about people who are disadvantaged. And before you jump to, wait, that's a social gospel. The social gospel means that you replace the gospel with what I just said. But there's another danger outside of the social gospel, which is the heartless gospel. That means I'm gonna preach gospel and let people who are disadvantaged just figure it out on their own. Because I figured it all out on my own. Did you? And if we're honest, spiritual people are really good at spiritualizing their heartlessness. That's the lesson of the Good Samaritan. They were all religious leaders walking by who all had really spiritual reasons to leave the man on the side of the road. It's why John says, how can we say that we love God and don't love one another? So the message of the Messiah is to preach good news to the poor, Absolutely, replacing the gospel with a social gospel would be wrong and a danger that should always be avoided, but so should the danger of having a gospel that's heartless. To bring good news to the poor. Secondly, to bind up the brokenhearted. The Messiah comes to bring hope and healing to those who are broken over the effects of sin in the world. Whether it's their own sin, the sin of others, or the consequences of sin on the earth, the anointed one comes to bring the hope of healing. And brokenhearted here is a really powerful term. It combines two Hebrew words that mean to shatter the inner self. Think of that, shatter the inner self. Do you know anyone whose inner self has been shattered? Are you somebody that has had your inner self to be shattered. What it means is the mind, the conscience, the heart is broken. You don't know who you are anymore. You don't know what will happen to you. You don't know who you can trust. And here is the Messiah who walks in and says, you can trust me. I can change your life and I'll never do you wrong. He heals the brokenhearted. Some of you have church hurt. Some of you have difficulty trusting people because They claim to be spiritual and they actually were using you. Here is a Messiah who steps in, who will never, ever, ever do that to you. He is a savior who binds up the brokenhearted. He then proclaims liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This may be in reference to announcing the year of jubilee, a fascinating year. That according to Leviticus 25, every 50 years, the land was supposed to go back to its original owners. Slaves were to be set free, and all debts were to be canceled. Jesus is announcing the year of Jubilee is coming. This would have been hopeful to those who were in exile. Here is the the promise of freedom. And then next, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus stops in the middle of this verse and doesn't talk about vengeance. He ends mid-sentence, closes up the scroll, and hands it back to the attendant, likely because he came in order to announce the year of the Lord's favor, and his second coming will be a day of deliverance, but also a day of judgment. Then to comfort all who mourn, the Messiah will bring the emotional help that is needed for those who are afflicted with sorrow. We heard this last week in Isaiah 16 verse 20 when the text says this, your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. What a day. And then finally, this is so beautiful, talking about identity, to grant those who mourn a beautiful headdress, the oil of gladness and the garment of praise. Notice the contrast. verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So the Messiah will not only bring an end to mourning, but he'll also transform people with a new kind of life, such that from head to toe, they'll be marked by beauty and wholeness. The effect of this will then make a stunning statement. These people are going to be like oaks of righteousness, this strongly rooted, majestic tree that towers over the forest, and their existence will communicate something powerful about the glory of God. Look at the text. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified such that the hope of these people for their future is not just connected to the change of circumstances for them, but rather it's a bigger story about God's glory being displayed. So let let me take a step back here from this technical treatment of this text and just help you understand that if you're a Christian, you know that what Isaiah foretold is exactly who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus helped the helpless. He healed the brokenhearted. He freed the spiritually imprisoned. He provided grace for the needy. He absorbed our judgment. He comforts those who weep. And he changed our identity. Jesus did all of that. Can I remind you that Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. He The Messiah, Jesus, is our hope. He's more than a concept, more than a philosophy, more than a theological system, more than a religion. Jesus is the anointed one. He is God's messenger to proclaim good news. Your life can change today if you put your trust in him. So anyone helpless here? Look to Jesus. Anyone feel brokenhearted? Your heart has been shattered. Look to Jesus. Anybody stuck in their own prison? Look to Jesus. Anyone feel needy? Look to Jesus. Anyone under judgment? Look to Jesus. Anyone sorrowful? Look to Jesus. Anyone not sure who they are anymore? Look to Jesus. And all of those problems find their answer in this anointed one upon whom the spirit of the Lord rests and he comes to proclaim good news. Wow. He's the anointed one who brings hope. It's the storyline of the Bible, hope, restoration, glory. Here's the second thing in verses 4 through 7. The result of the Messiah's message and deliverance will be a beautiful restoration of things like renewal and peace and spiritual vitality and joy. Look at verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall take up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Notice what will happen is there will be a renewal of what's been lost. The text refers to ancient ruins, former devastations, ruined cities, and then this, the devastations of many generations, things that have generational consequences to them. You look back on your family tree and you can see problem after problem after problem after problem, and you begin to wonder how could this cycle ever be broken? Jesus can say, I could break it. The rebuilding of the ruins. If you were an Israelite during the time of the Babylonian captivity, you would have had a very specific hope in mind, namely the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the restoration of your temple. And as we look beyond the return of Israel after their exile, we get hints of John's vision in Revelation 21. So the rebuilding of the city, and what does John see in Revelation 21 come down? He sees the new Jerusalem, like a bride coming down from heaven. And then we see the peace of God extending beyond Israel to all of the nations. Look at verse five, "Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your ploughmen and vine dressers." The idea is that there's peace, and the nations now are dwelling within Israel, participating in the flourishing of this society. Again, this sounds. Very much like Revelation 21, where the new Jerusalem welcomes the nations into it. And verse 26 of Revelation 21 says that the nations bring in their glory and their honor. So the image is rather than a world filled with wars and battles and conflicts and factions, there's going to be peace. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue, warring factions, people who didn't get along with each other, nations who fought against each other will dwell in peace because a new king has come and a new kingdom has been set in place. What a day. What's more, spiritual vitality will now mark everyone who's there, verse six, you will be called priests of the Lord and they shall, you, they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Here is this extension that now everyone is a priest. That This is hard for us to understand in our present day, but in the time when this was written, there were only priests of a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. Nobody else were, were, were priests. Nobody else went into the temple courtyard or the um, holy of holies and the holy place. Nobody went in except priests. Your relationship with God was always mediated by someone else. And yet there was this promise that the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah made of a new day that was coming. Here was the promise. He writes this in Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people. Why, why would that matter? Because no longer is there going to be something external. It's going to be on the inside. The spirit now is going to empower obedience. No longer is it going to be something from the outside in, but rather the inside out, such that he says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least To the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the new covenant. That was promised in the Old Testament and can I remind you that day has come now in the person and work of Christ. The spirit of Christ fills all those who know him as Lord and Savior and my guess is that there's many of us that have taken that for granted and not thought what a thing that is. I can talk to my savior in prayer and he is my high priest and he entered my world and knows exactly what my world is like i don't have a high priest who's distant but understands every trial and difficulty do you know what an old testament saint would have loved to have a high priest like that and the final blessing of god is joy God will have brought about his plan such that the nations are now providing material support for the nation, and their shame is going to be gone. Verse six, you shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Their shame is going to be so far removed by this double portion that they won't remember how bad things were. There'll be more than enough so much good in this new world that it'll be overwhelming. These are amazing promises, aren't they? When they were written to the people of God, they had no idea about their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. They were all future. But with the coming of Jesus, he inaugurates this new kingdom, this already not yet sort of rule. The already not yet aspect of the kingdom means that there are some things that have begun, but not everything is completed. The Messiah has come, the anointed one died, the anointed one rose again, he ascended into heaven, the spirit was poured out on Pentecost, he filled both Jews and Gentiles, and the church, our church, you, the church, gather because of this reality today. Restoration has begun, and in the meantime, we wait for our king to come and finish the job. So as a result, we stand in Isaiah 61 and we look for the future. We know how the future ends, and we marvel at the opportunity before us to live in light of this kingdom. It means that Jesus, the Messiah, is able to work out his restoration plan. He's going to do that globally, but he also can do that individually. Receiving Jesus puts you in the family of God and sets you as a recipient of his grace on the pathway for restoration. If you're not a Christian, that's a really important thing for you to know. The path of restoration begins when you understand who the Messiah is. Because everything about the storyline of God in the Bible is connected to this king who conquered death in order to rescue people from themselves. Hope, restoration, finally glory. The final section turns away from focusing on the people of God and it shifts to God himself. Notice the I statements in verse eight. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. God hates it. Everything that happened this week in the world that was wrong or outside of God's perfect desire for justice is outrageous to him and one day it's going to all be settled. He says in verse eight, I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them their offspring, notice this, will be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are the offspring the Lord has blessed. Why are these people on earth? Why are the recipients of his grace? Why, if you're a Christian, why are you on the earth? God rescued you, rescued you, not just because you had a need, Dear friend, he rescued you because you in your rescuing show the universe the exceedingly gracious glory of the creator of the universe. The aim for which God created the world, according to Jonathan Edwards, is to make much of his glory. So we gather on the Lord's Day to rehearse these glorious truths, to be reminded what Jesus did for us, not so that we can just think about how much we needed rescue, and to be so thankful the fact that he raised us up, but it is so that our praise and adoration could be brought to him because without him we have nothing, without him there's no plan, without him there's no hope, and to be gathered On the Lord's day, we celebrate the empty tomb on this day. Easter isn't the only day that we say the tomb is empty. We say it on this day as well. Why? Because that tomb rescues people who become part of the chorus of saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive wisdom and honor and glory and power. As a result, look at verse 10. The servant speaks again. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth, its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Notice the joy of this text. Here is the suffering servant because of the joy that he has in being the anointed servant of the Lord who follows in obedience. It reminds me of Hebrews two where it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Here is Jesus, so characterized by righteousness that he describes it like clothing, a glorious image that in the book of Revelation we see his hair is bright, like blazing light, like the sun, his eyes like fire. Here is this glorious image. It's the storyline of God's work in the world, and it ends with a garden. <laughs> a garden. This brings it all the way back to the beginning. The garden is where the problem started, and here we see a garden where things are growing, but the things that are growing aren't just plants. No, God is causing righteousness and praise to sprout up. This is a glorious garden where righteousness and the honor of God is modeled and extended around the world. Do you see why Jesus used this text? It's like the center of the message of what the Bible is all about. So if you're here today and you need help, can I remind you, Christian, that Jesus granted you freedom? You're gonna be okay because he's in control. Do you need to be reminded about God's ability to bring restoration? something broken or shattered in your life right now, can I just remind you, it is the mission of God to bring a glorious change in the world. He's going to accomplish it globally and he can make it happen in your marriage, in your morality. He can make it happen in your relationships. Whatever's broken, if Jesus gets in there, it actually can change. Some of you know that. But in the last week, you don't feel it. And my hope today is Isaiah 61 like strikes a nerve and for you to go, that's what I believe. That's true. Or maybe you need to consider the glory of God to be reminded that the storyline of the Bible is headed towards worship. This text is not meant for you to walk out of here and go, man, that was some really interesting exegesis of Isaiah 61. <laughs> Any more that, man, if your wife comes home with a new outfit to go, hmm, how much did that cost? color on that purple is a little off you're meant to savor the beauty when you see a sunset you're not meant to analyze the atmospheric reason why the sky is orange you're meant to sit there and just say wow my time is gone but let me end with Luke 4 Back in that text, the reason that the people in Nazareth were so upset with Jesus is because he challenged them and in effect said, there were lots of widows in Israel, but Elijah didn't go to the widows in Israel. He went to widows outside of Israel. Lots of people that were healed, but people outside of Israel were healed. And what he was telling them that made them so angry was this warning, and it's the warning I issue for us today. It's dangerous to be so close to the things of God that you miss the message. You can be so near that you don't even know the glorious realities of what's right in front of you. I'll close with this quotation from James Edwards on the Gospel of Luke. The unsettling truth of this story in Luke is that the greatest danger to the way of God in this world is posed by those who are closest to it. Jesus is rejected not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in Nazareth. He's not betrayed by the devil, but by one of the 12 he chose. He's not crucified in pagan Rome, but in the heart of Israel in Jerusalem. The rejection of Jesus repeats the rejection of God in the history of Israel whose ultimate adversary was not Baal worship or foreign nations, but my people who are bent on turning from me. Or in the words of John, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Isaiah 61. It's a powerful invitation to let Jesus be Lord. It's also the text that really made the people of Nazareth mad because Jesus was telling them you could be so close to it and yet miss it. The storyline of the Bible is hope, restoration, and glory. Oh, church, don't be so close to this that you miss Jesus. Lord Jesus, help us to feel and to hear and to know what it is that you are saying to us by this text. It's an amazing passage with so many paths. We pray that today we would embrace the storyline of the Bible that there's hope and restoration for the glory of God. Help us not to miss you, Jesus. Help us not to miss your heart, miss the hope that's offered to us in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.